Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. If you think movies are just about making money, think again. In our News from Strange Places episode this week, it's been increasingly about Hollywood pentertainment, that is, the Pentagon calling the shots as to what movies will or won't be engaged in mass U.S. military brainwashing on both the big and small screens with the Pentagon routinely bullying Hollywood into portraying the U.S. military in their massive amount of violent movies. Recent investigations into this matter has turned up Pentagon script approvals, edits, and cuts during what is euphemistically termed, quote, professional development sessions, whatever that means, and subjects like the Guantanamo trials rejected completely. And Afghanistan, just like the corporate media feel-good whitewashing coming out today during this embarrassing U.S. historical moment right now, though seeming with replay they'd rather forget about, when back in 1988 Sylvester Stallone mounted a postscript on screen regarding that CIA-funded Taliban predecessor, the Mujahideen, quote, This film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. RT reporter Konstantin Roskopf elaborates. Propaganda on the silver screen. So the DOD has been waging war on the creative freedoms of scriptwriters and directors. Perhaps the most blatant case is the 2019 CBS drama series The Code and Marine Corps Lawyers, which was canceled soon after release. Go pack. We're headed to a war zone. As it turns out, the military saw the first episodes before they went on air and was upset about a storyline showing a Marine-turned-congressman accused of brutally executing an Iraqi civilian and another serviceman who killed a Spanish citizen while drunk driving. Marine Corps leadership was apparently provided advanced copies of several of the episodes and was displeased enough that they communicated what they saw as serious shortcomings in the depiction of the Marines. CBS Television has indicated a desire to correct the problems in future episodes by accepting DoD assistance. As it says on Pentagon's official webpage, the department has a long-standing relationship with Hollywood. What it keeps quiet about is how many trade-offs it costs the filming community. Remember Homeland, an American long-running espionage thriller. According to the files, the producers asked the U.S. Army to support the final season's filming, but initially were turned down by the military after they saw the script. Army Entertainment Office is currently in talks with the producers of Homeland, who have asked for moderate army support. Initial request was declined due to a storyline that was not an accurate portrayal of soldiers. Showrunner responded with some significant edits to the problematic areas. Army has agreed to provide support as requested. Showrunners responded with significant edits. What they were, we don't know. But what we do know is that Homeland's final season speculates on a false story that the Russians funded Taliban insurgents and also plays up the consequence of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Sounds like something that American army bosses might like. The Pentagon doesn't always get its way, though. The same internal report suggests Christopher Nolan, a hotshot Hollywood director, simply snubbed the military as they showed their appetite for script edits. Continued discussions for support of Chris Nolan thriller Merry-Go-Round working title. Support requested includes use of Osprey and Chinook airframes. NGB and Air Force have indicated interest if military characterizations are rewritten, emphasizing military mission. Request for support of Chris Nolan thriller Merry-Go-Round working title seemed to have stopped, likely causes that producer-director were reluctant to make changes needed to gain DoD support. Others, like Captain Marvel's co-directors Anna Bowden and Ryan Flagg, had to cozy up to the Defense Department. Reportedly, they had lunch with Air Force Top Command and took part in a professional development session, whatever that means, before the film's release. No wonder Marvel movies are being branded as military propaganda in the media more and more. The internal reports cover just two years of Pentagon-Hollywood cooperation from 2017 to 2019. Yet they cite scores of famous movies and TV shows that gain support or a green light from the military, including Transformers, The Last Night, 
Fast and Furious 8, Tom Cruise's Top Gun 2, the list goes on. But those are the films that made it to the big screens, despite the edits. A lot of stories, like a documentary on Guantanamo Bay trials, have been rejected completely and never came into being. And now on Arts Express, this month, August 13th, would have been the 95th birthday of Fidel Castro. And in connection with our guest today on the show, British actress Julia Ormond, who played the late ABC reporter Lisa Howard in the 2008 historical drama Che, and Howard's own historic interviews with Fidel and Che back then. Here are excerpts from that Fidel Castro interview with Lisa Howard back in 1963. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We thought you might want to hear some of the events surrounding my interview with Fidel Castro. We filmed the interview on April 24th in a suite at the Hotel Riviera in Havana. The interview was filmed by a Cuban crew. The sound and film quality are not as good as we would wish, but technically we were not filming under ideal conditions. As for the content, that you may judge for yourself. And now, an interview with Fidel Castro. Dr. Castro, why do you feel at this early and very difficult stage of your own development that it's necessary to export your revolution to other nations throughout Latin America? Well, there is one thing you must bear in mind. She spoke of propaganda. That's one thing. We do have radio stations. We do have speeches of the revolutionary leaders and information from Cuba itself. And we make all this known in Latin America. But this is something very similar to what occurs with the radio stations in the United States, in Florida, for example. And many other parts of the country, where you broadcast programs where you publish, where you make known the points of view of your country, of the United States of America. And when all is said and done, you know we do not possess the enormous resources of the United States government, nor do we possess the training centers that the United States has. So we cannot compete with your country in the training of people from all over Latin America. Major Ernesto Che Guevara. He is a Marxist, a soldier, a physician, and the power behind Fidel Castro. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. El love. Love. Love of humanity, of justice and truth. A real revolutionary goes where he is needed. How does it feel to be a symbol? A symbol of what? And those were excerpts from the Lisa Howard interview with Fidel Castro, the ABC first ever female news reporter and first ever woman to have her own national network TV news show later fired and driven to suicide in 1965 for her politics. And you also just heard actress Julia Ormond, who portrays Howard in Steven Soderbergh's Che, who is played by Benicio Del Toro. And Ormond is our guest to discuss a number of her roles on screen, past and present, including Son of the South, the Spike Lee-produced reality-based drama revisiting the coming of age of the filmmaker Barry Alexander Brown in the heat of the civil rights movement back then. Ormond portrays a local communist activist, and the film also stars in one of his last roles, the late Brian Dennehy as a, well, unhinged clan leader. Ormond will be speaking about that and more, including her latest role in the psychological thriller Reunion. First, some scenes from Son of the South, then Julia Ormond. This is June 22nd, 1961. Can you recall your earliest memories of race? You grab that bat and you do what's right. I don't think so. This is in your blood, all right? This is where you belong, boy. 
Montgomery's a pretty town. With a pretty ugly side to it. Son, I'm starting to wonder if you are aware of the poison in the apple that you have bitten into. You know this movement is about more than just voting rights. We're trying to change the world. So what's gonna happen next? Let's start a revolution. We continue on. Let's start a revolution now. We'll break it, we won't back down. But we're still breathing. There's gonna come a time when something really bad happens and you're gonna have to decide which side you're on. Not choosing is a choice. Supposed to be non-violent now. I'm having a real big problem with that right now. You seem to be drawn to the challenge of immersing yourself as a British actress in other cultures, as in Che in the U.S. and Cuba, and in Son of the South, you're transported back in time to the mid-20th century as a Deep South socialite activist denounced as a communist during the civil rights movement back then. What led you into those? Yeah, it was definitely, um, Son of the South was, it was fabulous to get to, you know, sort of be in a Spike Lee movie and to get to work with Barry, who's been his editor, this remarkable editor for such a long time. Um, and then to go in and see how he, it was just interesting to see how an editor put a movie together a bit differently to perhaps other other directors. Really, really loved the guy, clearly very talented. Um, felt like it was a you know, an an important story to tell. Um, it obviously was shot before you had the the sort of murder of George Floyd. Um, and it was quite an eye opener for me in terms of things that were still Still going on. I think it was. Um, it's definitely one of those projects where you realise that I guess there will be no end to my learning about the ways with which I have a bias that comes from just white privilege. You know. And what are your memories of the late Brian Dennehy on the set, who just passed away last year? Uh, um, I don't know that. I don't know that I actually worked with him. Ah. But he was an amazing actor. I remember coming first and came across his work in Peter Greenaway. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary actor. Please tell me that I didn't do a scene with him. So you wouldn't know anything about him running around on the set in a clan hood and robes? No. I obviously missed that bit. And is there anything you know about Spike Lee coming on board as the executive producer? No, not really. I mean, when it came to me, Spike, so Spike has had this long, decades-long history of working with, uh, working with Barry, who's done most of his, who's edited most of his films. So they kind of work very much together mm. as a team. Mm. And I've always loved Spike's work. And you once said about your persona, about playing Lisa Howard in terms of women and work, I find it very scary. This fairy tale that gets built around you, it never seemed to be about how much hard work was involved. And it does help if you can brush that stuff off. What can you say about that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yes. I mean, I think I have it in a different context, I think. And I think maybe the word that I would pick on or sort of flag up is, um, is it being scary? I think it's just you wrap your head around it as you get older. But I do, I do feel as if our profession is shifting. I feel as if, um, for me, as I've gotten older, I've been really lucky in being given these great character roles, whether they're supporting roles um, or, or you know, sort of more substantive roles, um, or, or they fulfill a certain looks front. And for me, as a, I, I guess I myself as a character actress and I think when you when the doors of your career are opening in terms of being maybe a young female lead sometimes you don't get to do the same level of character work and that could almost be limiting so there's a I will I think I also though have to be appreciative and accept 
I also have to be a bit appreciative that that for whatever it was, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it nevertheless was something that uh, I I started my career that way. Mm. So I think you have to be a little bit more, maybe I'm a little bit more grateful in hindsight and less scared and just kind of, um, I like the fact that I had that experience as a young actor that I can now talk about as an older actor in terms of, you know, why do we have, what is the objectivity of women just limits the women that in front of the camera and the stories that are told about them. And I, I do feel that is um, something that goes completely against that. And what was it about Reunion and the story that drew you in? I was really blown away by the detail that Jake, the director, um, had put into it. And I thought it was very, very... There was something about it that to me seemed both mundane, human, and yet creepy at the same time. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to play with the, um, I guess, the boundaries. Oh, I wanted to play with the ways that parents kind of traditionally uh, discipline people, but then it becomes creepy in the context of the film. Um, I think for most of us, for instance, if your parents count, there's a moment where I've counted to three um, on her daughter, and I think for most of us, somebody doing that is deeply irritating. Mm. Um, so it was kind of finding those triggers and finding ways with which... Um, I think for me, it was in all honesty for the character. There, were, you had to work and understand what the story was, and then work backwards to make sure that there's ambiguity in how it's played. So you're kind of giving enough crumbs for audience to kind of go, "Hang on a minute, what did I just see? What did that mean?" <laughs> um, but not kind of crossing every T and dotting every I. So there's still a kind of tension of people trying to work it out. And anything to add to that about getting inside the furious and conflicted head of this difficult character? Because you did once say, easy is the kiss of death. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would, yeah, this, I mean, this for me definitely wasn't easy. You know, so people often say that the funnest roles for actors to play are people who are flawed and people who are cruel or whatever and sort of getting inside that, but... Um, I can't, I have to say that um, it's been a relief to let go of Ivy as a <laughs> person to carry around. Yeah. Now, would you say Reunion is a New Zealand story and depiction in any way? I think if they'd left the cicadas in, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> there was, uh, there was, uh, I think it's a pretty universal story. Um, I like I think there is something that I guess I was tapped to as of New Zealand, but I think it's, uh, you know, so the, just the cast was so fabulous in terms of the people that we had was really great. Um, and also the, the crew were absolutely phenomenal. We had very few people working. Um, and what they they worked so hard. The art department was just absolutely, absolutely, Absolutely extraordinary, and sort of the things that you know, makeup and hair pulled off. The things that they pulled off in that production were really quite extraordinary. Um, but in terms of the story, I would imagine that it could be transplanted pretty much anywhere. And are you working on anything next? I'm currently in Virginia shooting season two of Walking Dead World Beyond. Um, and during COVID, I uh, participated in a podcast and an animated movie. I don't know that they have sorted out their, their titles yet. Um, and I'm looking at an independent film afterwards. So um, I feel uh, I feel like COVID has just been a very kind of strange and challenging time for mm. the whole world. Yeah. Um, and oh, one thing I am working on is I do a lot of work that's on trafficking and slavery. Mm. Um, and one of the things that we are the, I founded an organization in California that became the source of the transparency and supply chain law. Um, and I know that Australia has 
enacted in 2018, 2017, 2018, the Australia Modern Slavery Act that has the transparency element in it. And it's my understanding that uh, New Zealand is also looking at transparency in supply chains um, as a way forward. So um, that's been my recent New Zealand connection is talking to people about that. And what are you up to in the film you're currently shooting? Um, it's a television series um, where I am playing somebody who is in the... Uh, it's the Walking Dead, Walking Dead World Beyond. So Walking Dead is the main TV series, but it also now has... Um, they've kind of created a Walking Dead universe with a couple of different spin-offs, and we're one of them. Um, they've already shot one season and we're going into the next. It's just really good fun. We're just, we're just in the prep stage, you know, in that stage of finding out, finding out what the storyline is going to be um, and all the rest of it. So mm. it's pretty, it's in that fun stage. Mm-hmm. Not that it ever goes out of fun stage. I shouldn't make it sound like, oh, it's going to get rough soon. <laughs> okay. Thank you for calling into our show. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, a radio drama presentation having to do with an East Harlem pool hall at 3.30 a.m., 24-hour tacos with a line out the door, and a new friend from New Delhi. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. We're happy to bring on a new contributor to Arts Express today, storyteller David Leppelstadt. David is a young storyteller from New York City who has appeared twice on the Moth Radio Hour podcast, telling original stories from his childhood. And he's also worked as a teaching assistant for the Moth All-City High School Slam team. He believes that listening to and telling stories can help us further share our collective human experience. And now a story of youth in New York City, written and performed by David Leppelstadt. This is a story about sneaking out. I was about to go to middle school and I was ecstatic. Not because I knew anything about the middle school experience. As far as I knew, it was just going to be the same periods of math, science, and social studies leading into the fulfilling yet fleeting moment of recess. I was excited because I knew this was going to be an opportunity for me to make new friends. And more importantly, ditch the friends I already had. You see, I'd grown pretty sour with my elementary school friend group, especially one friend in particular, Trevor. Trevor and I had been friends since we were little, and it started off really fun. Trevor was super charismatic, outgoing, and funny, but as we got older, it felt like every time I hung out with Trevor, I ended up doing something I really didn't want to do. I was what we call a goody two-shoes. So as you can imagine, Trevor's favorite activities of stealing Smarties from the candy store, googling bad words, and setting off stink bombs in our neighborhood made my brittle 11-year-old frame shake with an awful combination of guilt and fear. At the end of fifth grade, right before I was to leave Trevor behind and start my new, safe, and sound social life at middle school, he invited me to a final sleepover party at his apartment. I had a feeling he had something in store for me. He was not going to let me venture off to this new school that easy. I get to Trevor's apartment and see the usual crew is all there. Daniel, Sammy, and Lucas. We start off just having some good innocent fun, playing the 2010 installation of the NBA Live video game series and eating cheese puffs. I was actually having a good time, that is, until the clock struck midnight and Trevor laid out his plan for the rest of the party. At 3 o'clock in the morning, we were going to sneak out from the apartment without his parents knowing and walk all the way down to Times Square, a place that always gave me the creeps. Now I'm pretty tired from the video games and quite bloated due to the cheese puffs. This is the last thing I wanted to do, but as I analyzed the sea of eager, adolescent male faces, I knew that I didn't have much of a choice. When it was finally 3 o'clock in the morning, Trevor poked his head out the door of his bedroom, where we all had set up our sleeping bags to make sure his parents were nowhere in sight. We 
We snuck our way through the hallway, tiptoeing ever so delicately. But as we got to the living room, Trevor's dog started to bark. I was almost sure we were going to wake up his parents, but by some miracle we made it out of the apartment undetected. Feeling the muggy June air was a reminder that I was up at a time I had never been up before, without adult supervision, in the streets of New York. Now I always thought New York City was the city that never sleeps, but that night there was not a soul on the sidewalk, nor a car on the street. By the time we got to Times Square, we saw all the lights still on, but still no people anywhere. I was deathly frightened. I felt like there might have been some sort of alien invasion because I had never seen Times Square like this. We all find absolutely nothing to do, and so we walked the treacherous mile back to Trevor's apartment because none of us had a precious Metro card at the time. And when we get to his door, Trevor starts to frantically pat his pockets. I ask him what's wrong. I forgot my key in the apartment. I proceed to have a meltdown. I'm in full-fledged tears, struggling to catch my breath and repeatedly saying I'm gonna get into the biggest trouble of my life. Trevor, on the other hand, never one to be faced by the prospect of being in trouble, proposes that we can all just spend the night sleeping in the hallway and then knock on the door at, say, 8 in the morning and tell his mom that we simply went out for a walk in the morning and forgot our key, as is typical with fifth grade sleepovers, the old morning stroll. We all pass out in the hallway and stay in our slumber well past 8 a.m. It is not until the creaking sound of the door that we awaken. We see Trevor's mom red with rage at the sight of her son and his friends huddled together like sardines. She automatically knows that we snuck out, almost as if this was not the first time that this had happened. She is furious with all of us, but especially me. I wouldn't have expected this from you, David, she snarls. I couldn't help but to agree. My parents were notified, and just like that, I lost three months of weekend Nintendo Wii privileges. And with that treacherous punishment, my dream of a spotless new life was tarnished. Now that feeling stuck with me all the way up until my second time sneaking out in New York City, almost eight years down the line. It was freshman orientation week at college, and my college was out of town. Now this is a week that ensures that all the new students will find a dedicated group of friends if and only if they attend all the social events that the university first year planning committee have so carefully devised. But I went to the lectures, I went to the square dance, I went to the magic show, and I still couldn't find any friends. With orientation week coming to a close, and friend groups forming by the second, I felt like the window to make friends at my tiny college was closing rapidly. I turned the only place I could to find new friends, student club interest meetings. I started to attend every interest meeting I could. I would never really pay attention to what was said during the meeting, but what I did pay attention to was this one student who I saw at every single one of them. He had big curly hair and golden glasses and a neon backpack that looked like it was from the 70s. After every meeting, I'd marvel to see as he would always light up a cigarette and walk off into the distance. One morning, on the way to pick up a care package my mom had sent me, I saw the mystery fellow sitting on a bench, smoking a cigarette. In a stroke of courage, I went up to him and said, I've seen you at every single interest meeting. Why do you go to so many of them? Are you really interested in cooking and trials and Eastern European vocal techniques? And he said, well, Yes and no. I really just go to try and make new friends. So I joined him on the bench, and we spent that whole day talking. His name was Sonny. With our first winter break approaching, I got a text from Sonny saying that his plane back home to New Delhi had been delayed for four days, and he needed somewhere to stay in the city. So I sort of nonchalantly responded like, oh yeah, I think you can stay with my family, but inside, I was thrilled. When he came to stay with my family in the city, I learned all sorts of new things about him. I learned he has this loud, infectious laugh. I learned that he interrupts you frequently, but in a way that assures you that he's listening to every single word that you say. And I also learned that he has a bit of an interesting sleep schedule. Sonny would go to bed most nights at around 6 a.m. and wake up the next day at 3 p.m. But I didn't mind any of this because every second spent with him, I could not stop smiling. On the last night of his four-day stay with us, I agreed to join him in his sleep schedule and stay up all night. We watched each other's favorite YouTube videos, we played a board game,
but then Sani shared an idea for how we could spend the rest of the night. He said we should sneak out and walk around New York City. Suddenly, I saw Trevor's face flash onto Sani's, still traumatized from my past Times Square experience. Still, I was determined to impress my new friend and be a good New York City host. So I peered my head out of my bedroom door and checked that my parents were not awake. It does not cross my mind whether or not I should even be concerned by this as I am a 19 year old who's in college, but I just can't get Trevor out of my head. So we safely make our way out of the apartment and I feel the brisk February air, a reminder that I am repeating the same act that cost me my good track record with my parents. I nervously ask Sonny, where do you want to go? And he says, I really want to play pool. Which takes us down to Jackson Heights, where the pool halls stay open all night. We walk into one, and it's completely jam-packed with people just playing pool at 3.30 in the morning. I'm just delighted by this new scene and filled with energy. I've never even been to a pool hall, but now I know the best time to go is at 3.30 in the morning. After some intense games of pool, Sonny and I both worked up quite an appetite. We get back on the train to my house to make something out of our fridge, but deep in conversation we miss our stop and end up in East Harlem. Almost magically, we get out of the train to find this 24-hour taco restaurant with a line out the door. The line moves quickly, and we're eating the most delicious tacos and laughing hysterically at 5.30 in the morning, right in the middle of the street. This is what I always envision New York City at night to be. Pools, tacos, crowds of people, and a friend that you can just laugh with. We woke up the next day at 3 in the afternoon, and when my parents asked what we did the night before, I couldn't lie to them. Once a goody two-shoes, always a goody two-shoes. But this time, instead of revoking my coveted time spent in front of a screen, they just inched closer in their chairs, ready to hear about the enchanting night with my new best friend in the city that never sleeps. A city made just for sneaking out. You've been listening to storyteller David Leppelstadt performing his own story. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And now on Arts Express, British actress Emily Beecham is on the line from Berlin to talk about her starring role in the Emily Mortimer-directed The Pursuit of Happiness dramatic series, touching on the comic, melancholy, and rebellious urges of wartime 20th century women and the implication of issues continuing to challenge them today. Beecham also reflects on raising that unusual child in Cruella and her upcoming role as the younger Vanessa Redgrave in The Outside Room. But first, some scenes from The Pursuit of Happiness. Linda Radlett was not only my favorite cousin, but then, and for many years, my favorite human being. They always have boring old me. Honey, I am going to drag you out of this place forever. <laughs> they have everything they will ever need here. Why would they want to leave? I want to escape and have fun and wear high heels and be love. Life only about love. Whoever invented love ought to be shot. We came into the world. Linda was a plum ripe for the plucking. The tree had been shaken. I'd like to observe exciting things. God, what? Don't be scared, Matthew, darling. Moti is almost completely domesticated. Much like you. You can't start a life with someone based only on romance and excitement. If you don't draw the line somewhere, nothing will ever be enough. I don't want just enough. Let's hope women can decide who they are, irrespective of who they marry. Do you ever feel like half of who you are has been stuffed into a suitcase and slowly suffocating? War is inevitable. I'm lost without you, Fanny. It's not here that's home. It's always been you. Whatever happens, I shall always be on your side.
Hello, and welcome to our show. Hello. What can you say about the relationship of your character, Fanny, with Linda, and how that defined and expressed the plight of upper-class British women at that time? Hmm, that's a really interesting and detailed question. Um, <laughs> well, I think Fanny and Linda have, obviously, they had quite different influences. They were obviously brought up in the same quite aristocratic society and um but uh fanny obviously was brought up by her auntie who taught her the value of education and linda was taught that these were not attractive qualities in women <laughs> and um um yes well i think they both sort of are kind of pushing the boundaries and sort of trying to figure out it's sort of about their pursuit of identity and their pursuit of life really and trying to figure out what their opportunities are and what are the opportunities they don't have as well so I think perhaps Fanny certainly feels that her she didn't have many options in her but um Linda also makes very bold decisions and um kind of gets vilified by society so I they are both kind of tussling about with that in their own very very different ways yeah that's such a um there's so much I could say about that question (laughs) I don't even know where to start um and what do you think accounts for the enduring popularity of the Nancy Midford novel adapted for this production even though written about the lives of women over 75 years ago in 1945 ah well well Nancy is I think, you know, she's still quite, could be considered quite radical today, really. She's very candid, as you know. She's very, um, the way she talks about being a woman and many of the experiences of being a woman is she's very honest and quite cutting and very witty and very funny. So she would still really speak to people now. I mean, she was considered pretty radical then. Um, but also, even though things have changed for women, there are still many um, of the experiences that are very similar and kind of figuring out what your femininity means or many contrasting and kind of um, they sort of who you're trying to figure out who you are and where you want to go and what your opportunities or choices are. and. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, I think Nancy will always, you just have to look up some of her um, quotes and they'll just make you laugh and also move you. She's very um, funny and, but she also has quite, there is always an undertone of a kind of much more depthful kind of, almost kind of darker undertone, I think, you know, and also the way the characters are they're all trying to express themselves in their own different ways and there's so many relevant topics you know linda's father is a xenophobe and merlin's character is bisexual and linda wants to explore her sexuality and kind of find adventure through the men that she meets um but also fanny kind of wants to values her mind and kind of wishes she could do stuff that her husband could do I think I think they all have their different um pursuits and journeys <laughs> again this it's um a topic I guess I could talk about for a long time but <clears throat> yeah sure and speaking of playing related characters as in the pursuit of love what can you say about what it was like being part of Cruella as the woman who raises Cruella and next as the younger Vanessa Redgrave's character in The Outside Room. Oh, yes. The Outside Room. I haven't shot The Outside Room yet. Uh, we were going to, but um, the COVID meant that we couldn't because it's it's shot in South Africa, and I think it was too complicated, so they've had to push it back. So I will see later. Um, but um, playing the uh, uh, relative to Cruella, who was Estella before she became Cruella, 
um, oh, it's so easy working with little Tipper. Um, her name's Tipper, the actress, Tipper Seafred. And she, um, children are so great to work with because they're so reactive and they're so honest and they just like react immediately to anything that you do. And uh, she was just the loveliest and she had a real a cheeky wink. She made me laugh a lot. Um, but I think, I think, I think I wanted to kind of have that sort of uh, mother relationship with her that felt like, um, like my character really respects and supports Estella and wants the best for her and kind of wants to be uh, her support and like embold, like make Estella feel bold and like she can make choices that she wants, she can follow her, her chat talent and make choices and to be fearless. So I think in a way she was sort of a bit of a cheerleader for her and the kind of a, so that was really nice playing somebody who was nurturing and protective and kind of wanted to really make her confident and support her and I um and it was easy with Tipper because <laughs> she's great um, now this is a woman's story but what do you feel can convey to male audiences well I've actually had lots of men and women telling me that they were very they were in bits or they were moved by it, which I rather loved especially hearing the men were sobbing um but um I think, I think really it's just because I think it's sort of a story that really not only really for women, obviously it talks about the that struggle of physically being a, a woman and being limited in that way. But also really it's about, I guess, following your heart and your differences and your kind of trying to figure out your identity and love, really, which I guess is, you know, something for both men and women, you know, friendship, love and familial family love and kind of coming to terms with difficulties in your family dynamics, which they both have, both Linda and Fanny, and also friendship as well and how that informs their decisions and how they can live through each other's experiences, even though they're very different, you can love each other's differences. And so I think it's really about... Um, love and struggle in a time of change as well so as as i think we were saying it's, a, it's set in the interwar period and they're so they were on the cusp of real change and i think you know we've been experiencing a lot of you know a lot of transitions lately as well so i think there's so many parallels with that and community and love and kind of i think it's about lots of lots of things and growing up and experiencing things and expectations versus reality and kind of uh, the joys and the humiliations and the funny things and the, all sorts of things. <laughs> so there's lots to it, I think, Nancy's story. I think she's inspired by her own life. How do you feel based on the pursuit of happiness? What is the same about the lives of women today and different? And how far do you think they still need to go in terms of enduring realities? I think that the... Um, well, of course, there are many differences, but also that so many parallels still to all those topics now. And also kind of being a woman, I mean, there are many different kind of things that sort of conflict and kind of messages you're given or kind of what you feel may be expected of you or what you want. And kind of it's, it can be a bit of a tussle of pull different directions sometimes your femininity or being a woman and 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 I think that's certainly still something that is sort of evolving and kind of I I think but also for men as well I mean it's not it's I I think the roles of men and women I think perhaps have become less separated than they used to be you know before in the time of pursuit of love the men would go out and do the jobs and the women would stay at home and now we can do both of these things if we choose whatever sex we are. Um, but, um, you know, I think, um, <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you for calling into our show. Yes, thank you for having me on your show. Cheerio, bye. And The Pursuit of Happiness is in release online. And we'll go out now with Bro on the Global Television Beat. What about conglomerates like Netflix? butting heads with governments worldwide, and how that off-screen drama 
is playing out as well. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, and this episode is titled Streamers versus Socialism, or What is Left of It in Global Governance. The epic battle being waged, or rather being reported on in the corporate entertainment press, is between streamers and theaters, or between various streamers. However, this is a battle now being fought, not just in the U.S. Netflix is already losing U.S. subscribers to its rivals Disney Plus and HBO Max, but throughout the world. Only through global subscriptions can these companies, most of whom have run up huge debt, stay one step ahead of their creditors. It's also through global profits that the companies most now flush with cash, but with the pressure of debt and increased competition always looming, can outmaneuver any single country that attempts to compete, situation I detail in my new book, Diary of a Digital Plague Year, Corona Culture, Serial TV, and the Rise of the Streaming Services. In the U.S., these companies are private, but in the rest of the world, complicated systems of financing of film and television, and increasingly as well, of alternate streaming services, usually feature a healthy amount of government funding. This funding, in many ways, helps account for more progressive and socially imbricated films and programs. So, this battle for the soul of popular media is actually between neoliberal, utterly profit-driven conglomerates versus national governments and individual creators who are attempting to retain some shred of their own culture and potentially address problems endemic to them. More and more, though, the power of the American streamers is forcing national films and television series to dilute their content in order to also reach a global audience, which they now also increasingly need in order to compete. This global sweep is now the main profit-making element of Netflix, where foreign subscribers now outnumber those in the U.S., and which is available in 190 of the 195 countries in the world. There are limits, though, even for the most dominant streamer, which must come up with new content, films and television series, weekly, and which does not have an extensive catalog or backlog of films and series, as do the other streamers, most of which have merged with Hollywood Studios, so that they now contain studio offerings going back decades. Netflix panicked during the production halt in last year's confinement and began leasing or buying older films such as the Francois Truffaut collection, as well as now constantly needing to compete with the other streamer studios by corralling top-line stars and directors into its stable, as it has done with the upcoming Don't Look Up, directed by the big shorts Adam McKay and starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, and every other Hollywood newcomer and star they could round up. These limitations aside... Netflix and the other American streamers following in their wake are adept at outmaneuvering local producers and governments, with examples abounding in Britain, Italy, Australia, and Spain. In Britain, where the streamers BritBox, a combination of the programming of British public and private channels, and BFI Player attempt to counter this influence, the Red Devil from Los Gatos, as Netflix is sometimes referred to on the continent, Early in its run, employed in Britain 900 engineers, a huge number, and comparatively in terms of Europe, more than any channel in France can mobilize. British regulators are also incensed about a Netflix button on the standard remote control of any television so that viewers can bypass British public television and go right to streaming. In Italy, the government is watching its industry be outflanked due to its extremely generous 30% rebate for streaming service shooting, which results in some temporary job creation, but no sharing of residuals. The Italian pay-on-demand channel Chile is now giving Apple iTunes a run for its money in Italy, but partially because it has cash from the U.S. rivals Warner Brothers, Fox, and Disney, who are attempting to outflank Apple. Australia, which has a vibrant public television network, is being outspent by Netflix by almost 10 times as much. In 2020, $841 million to $89.7 million. The country is in danger of being swamped by the streamers as TV stations collapse due to loss of advertising revenue. Consumers early on demonstrated an appetite for turning off public television already in place as before Netflix legally entered the country, 23% of the country, 6 million of a total of 23 million, watched the service using VPNs, which conceal the viewing country. Australia also boasts a rival streaming service, Stan, but forecasts that it, too, will soon be overtaken by Disney+, Plus, which has only been operating in the country for two years. Perhaps the major battle is being fought in Spain, 
which Netflix has made its European capital. The country has abundant sunshine for filming outdoors, talent from an already developed industry, and the streaming service sees it as a portal by which it will be able to access Latin America and the 580 million Spanish speakers in that world. As Screen International reported, Netflix currently lists 50 Spanish titles, led by one of the world's most popular series, Money Heist, which will return for its final season in September. The streamer currently boasts 70 film productions with 35 Spanish partners and claims to have created 1,500 jobs for cast and crew and to supply 21,000 days of work for extras. The country is a production site not only for Spanish series but also Anglo series like The English, an Amazon epic western, with A Quiet Place's Emily Blunt, as other streamers also recognize Spain's value as a location that is exotic but cheaper than the U.S. The country, though, may be in danger of being overwhelmed. Netflix produces more content than is even required of it by the government, and its so-called job creation is all temporary, with, again, fees paid up front, and Netflix then laying claim to the work in perpetuity. Governments and national film and television industries are beginning to realize that their own films and series will be swept aside if this onslaught continues unabated. In Spain, where, just as everywhere else, the challenge is to keep the industry from becoming what screen labels a service industry for the U.S. giants, there's now a government law going along with the European ruling that 30% of content must be European, requiring streamers to pony up 3.5% of their profits for investment in the Spanish TV industry and 2% in the film industry. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.